Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Okay, so picture this, you're a behavior consultant. You've been called into a zoo to consult on a behavior that the zookeepers need changed or need to stop happening. And the behavior is that the giraffes are eating the foliage in and around their enclosure. So there are tall trees that surround the enclosure and there are a few trees inside the enclosure and the giraffes are eating all the leaves off of the trees. And they call you in and they say, you know, they can't do this. We spend a lot of money on our exhibits and the trees look terrible. They look bare. We provide them with food. Why are they eating the trees? We need them to stop eating the trees. And if you're following me, you're going, oh man, I'm not sure how we would change that. That's such a natural, normal behavior for a giraffe. A giraffe eats leaves from trees. That's literally what a giraffe is designed for. Look at their long neck. Um, look at their ability to do that. Look at their digestive system that's designed to break down those harsh leaves and sticks. And so you might come up with a plan for that, but in general, you would feel a little bit stuck in the request of the zookeepers. And if you're a good behavior consultant, you'd probably explain to the zookeepers that you didn't think this was a fair request and that you could certainly provide a lot of alternatives for the giraffes, but that some leaf-eating behavior from the trees was likely to still exist unless they removed the trees entirely from the environment. And now you are in the shoes of the modern dog trainer because the modern dog trainer is mostly asked to stop giraffes from eating leaves in trees. When the modern dog trainer is asked to stop the border collie from stalking and charging at traffic. When the modern dog trainer is asked to stop the Jack Russell from trying to kill the family cat. When the modern dog trainer is asked to stop the beagle from following his nose into the woods and not coming back. <laughs> we are the person that is being asked to alter the behavior of the giraffe. We just don't think of dogs that way. And so I am here to posit that breed as well as individual matters a lot and that breed typical behaviors really do need to be taken into account when we are called upon to alter the behavior of the dogs that we live with. If you're in a zoo and you are called in to consult on, say say it is the giraffes that you're called to, con to consult on, the smartest thing you should do, and this comes directly from Dr. Susan Friedman's advice, the smartest first thing to do is to call in the giraffe expert. Who knows giraffes the best? And yet, 
it has become kind of out of favor or um, just just kind of frowned upon to look at dogs this way in our field. Trainers are scoffed at when they bring up breed type and breed differences because dogs are largely all the same and respond to the same learning mechanisms. And, and that is true. But breed typical behaviors really, really matter just as much as species typical behaviors. And so if I'm called in to consult on the behavior of the hyenas, I want to talk to the hyena expert. If I am called in to consult on the behavior of a specific bird, I don't only want the bird expert. I want that particular species of bird. I want that expert. And we should think of dogs like this. And I think that part of the reason that this has fallen out of favor is because of the language surrounding a lot of different breeds that goes like this. Well, my breed needs a heavy hand. My breed needs an alpha. My breed needs corrections. Okay, and then the dog trainers in the positive reinforcement-based community primarily kind of go, ew, no, 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 none of them need that. That's, that's not a thing that we, they can all learn with positive reinforcement. And that's true. But knowing why the owner of the, say, Belgian Malinois says that is important for you. So rather than your knee-jerk response of, no, that's not true, no, they don't need corrections. Of course they don't. Why don't you ask why? Why don't you say, can you give me some examples that you that make you feel that way? Like, get curious about where that expert is coming from. Accept that maybe they do know something you don't know. I'm not saying accept that they're right in stating that positive reinforcement won't work, because of course it will. I'm saying that you accept that they maybe know something you don't, and that you you should you would do well to ask them to explain themselves. A really perfect example is livestock guardian dogs are raised in roughly, you know, very similar environments to sheep herding dogs. So on the same farm, you're going to have your Maremma and your Border Collie. And they're both dogs, both raised roughly in the same environment. And they both have vastly different jobs and vastly different instincts. And you would be unsuccessful trying to train either of them for the other one's job. It's not going to happen for you. And so knowing that, you should also know that trying to train your great Pyrenees that has found himself living in suburbia not to patrol the yard and bark will be less successful than training the Shih Tzu to come inside when he hears somebody walking down the alleyway. And that you might want to take a different route then based on who this dog is and what his genetics say that he's probably going to be like. And then looking at the individual behavior. Because for our best outcomes, we are looking at all of the above. For our best outcomes, we're looking at everything at play, the current wellness routine, are there welfare deficits for this particular dog in front of me? The current maladaptive behaviors that are being discussed, what behaviors that are probably normal behaviors for this dog but are misplaced and happening in the quote-unquote wrong times, you know, what are those behaviors? Then we need to look at the history of the individual. What, what's this individual's learning history? What do they know? What do they not know? What's their experience been? 
And then what are the breed typical behaviors for this dog? And are those maladaptive behaviors breed typical? You know, breed typical and species typical are both really, really important. Okay, so a dog, most dogs are social creatures that want to be near their people. Most of them. Therefore, looking at the maladaptive behavior of freaking out when the person walks out of the house, we can look at that with compassion and we can approach it with desensitization. And we can also say that, you know, this dog is simply not suited for a household where you are gone for eight or nine hours in a row. And for some reason, we're comfortable doing that, but we're not as comfortable saying, you know, this Great Pyrenees is really suffering in the city and here's the reasons why. So... When looking at our clients, our dogs, behavior is a study of one, but part of that study is looking at all of the factors behind the dog. And I would just encourage everybody to get, to get a good education on dog breeds, but then also don't be afraid to reach out to those experts. If somebody has lived with and bred Alaskan Malamutes for the last 25 years, and you don't want to listen to them because they say that their dog really needs an alpha type presence. You are missing out on some of their information. You should ask them to just tell you what that means to them. To give you some concrete examples of what that might look like. And you might be surprised. You actually might find some missing links to working with your Malamute clients. I would encourage all of us to recognize that dogs are not all the same thing. They're really, really vast species with a lot of major differences and we are smart to recognize those differences and listen to the experts about their own breed rather than assuming we know everything because everything can be boiled down to antecedent behavior and consequence. And some Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Gail, who writes, My daughter has a rescue dog. We think she is around three. We do not have a history on her, except for the fact that she, that in the shelter she had a litter of puppies. She's super sweet, gets along with all dogs and people. Problem is, when you pet her, which she desperately desires, she keeps pushing into you harder and harder for more. If you try pushing her away, she pushes in harder. How do you teach her to sit quietly by you and get pet without the obnoxious behavior pushing into you? I'm going to take her for a month or two for some training. I was going to teach her to go to her bed when, when she does this, but she would really like to have her bias for gentle petting. Okay, so Gail, you have um, a kind of classic issue of just mismatched preferences here. The dog is kind of <laughs> aggressively pushing her body into you, um, and that's unpleasant for you, but that's how she kind of receives petting. There's probably a little bit of desperation in here. Um, off the top of my head, because I don't think it's fair to punish her, and I don't think it's fair to even tell her to go lay down, because that will wind up being punishing, because she um, wants to be petted so, so badly. I think that you need to come at it from that point of desperation. Touch her a lot. Touch her all day. Touch her every day, right? So no, it shouldn't be a rarity. She shouldn't be starving for that affection. And if you're bristling a little bit, because I just said she's starving for affection, I mean, historically, she has been. She's from a shelter. 
Um, and if she landed in the shelter pregnant, then she probably wasn't cared for very well in the first place. And so she historically has been starving for it. So I'd pet her a lot. And the other thing that I'm thinking about is I'd probably try like a T-touch wrap or a thunder shirt on her to see if that offset some of those needs of pushing into you so badly. I would definitely not push back on her. As you just pointed out, that doesn't work. It doesn't work because she likes it. (laughs) She wants you, she wants you to push back at her as much as she is pushing into you. So you certainly could stop petting her and back away if you wanted to kind of try to punish that behavior. But I would focus more on reinforcing. I would focus more on petting her nicely and as and if she's still you keep petting her and if she starts to come into your space you just back off a little bit if she backs off a little bit you come back and pet her some more it needs to be this kind of back and forth exchange of you know this is what you like and this is what I like and um cycling through that rather than I only like to pet you this way and therefore you have to and otherwise you have to go lie down best of luck Gail Uh, Next one's from Aaron, who writes, I know this is going to come down to the individual dog, but I'm wondering if you have advice for framework or framework um, on deciding when to end a dog's sport career. At what point is the risk of injury and agility not worth it when a dog really likes the activity but doesn't have insane border collie-esque drive for it? I don't want to let my enjoyment of the training and the social aspect cloud my judgment too much. If this is too case-by-case, feel free to ignore the question. So Aaron... First of all, I don't think there is a set rule. So it is case by case, but I can give you kind of my guidelines and the way that I think about it. Number one is that um, bodies can only do agility for so long. But if you take care of the dog really well and the dog is generally sound, then the body can do agility for quite a while. Um... I want to ask myself seriously, does the dog really, really love it? Or do I just really, really love it with the dog, right? So if it appears as though the dog really enjoys it and it enhances the dog's life, then I'm more inclined to keep doing it with them. If the dog has never had an injury, great. I'm even more inclined to keep doing it with them. If I'm constantly kind of rehabbing an injury, constantly going back to the drawing board on the dog having some kind of lameness or whatever like that, that's going to influence me. But generally speaking, I would like to retire them injury-free. I would like them to end their career never having been seriously hurt. And so what that means is that as long as I can keep the dog's body in good enough condition to do the game without getting hurt, then I'm going to keep doing the game. Um, I retired Iggy when she was 10. And the reason I did is because she had never been hurt but she was slowing down. I dropped her down to uh, performance heights. So she went from 20 inches down to 16. And she she had never been hurt. She was slowing down. I could see that there were, was um, soreness after agility that I had never noticed before. And so I was kind of treating that. And I just, I knew... And, and she also was much harder to keep in condition after she was spayed. And she was spayed when she was eight. And I fought really hard to keep her body in um, that tight muscular shape that I wanted it in to do the sport. And so I knew we were kind of on the downhill as soon as that happened. Ten years old to me is also a nice, good, long career. I could have probably kept running her another year or two, but she did blow a cervical disc about a year um, about a year later from retiring. So she could have been doing agility and blowing the disc maybe sooner um, or maybe not. 
And then I would have been forced to retire her when she blew that disc. And I never want to be forced to do it. So for me, from a physical standpoint, I'm constantly looking at, can I keep this dog in the right amount of condition to be doing the game and not getting hurt? Um, And is the dog still really enjoying it? That's pretty much the best I have for you. If the dog doesn't love it, if the dog is just kind of doing it for you, then I'm probably more inclined to retire them sooner. But I don't think there's an age that you have to make that decision. I think it's very dog dependent. And I think looking at their body um, is a really big part of it. But also just for me, competitively, I knew that, you know, Iggy wasn't going to be competing at high levels anymore. And that's how I like to compete. And so we went out with a bang. We went out in finals at Sinosport and... um, then then she was done. That was her last event. And it was emotional. And it actually is still emotional for me. It was two and a half years ago, almost three years ago. And um, it's still really hard for me that she's not my running partner anymore because she was so incredible. But it's it's a good thing that she still gets to hike with me all day or, or, you know, any, any day of the week that we go. So she, I want their body to continue to do the things that do enhance their life a lot as long as possible. So very long winded and unsure answer, but hopefully that helps you make your decision. Next one is from Kim. Kim writes, looking for tips and advice on introducing a friend's new puppy to off-leash walks with an existing adult group, my three and her other two. We have a well-established set of relationships. One of my three is not keen on new dogs. This generally looks like stink eye and snarking for proximity. The likely plan is going to um, off-leash hike as we always do, and I'm going to tell my grumpy boots to leave it and pay him for lots, um, pay him lots for that, and she's going to call her four-month-old pup to her lots and pay for that, monitoring closely. I think the alternative is laying a long foundation of leash walking with just these two, no off-leash group time without the other hoodlums, wherein adult grumpy boots learns puppy will not enter his bubble uninvited, and wherein pup-pup learns about the bubble. Puppy has some good foundation with my, uh, with many other dogs and is not known to push proximity when dogs with dogs who say no thank you. My grumpy boots has a very long, uh, very large no thank you, which is why I feel the need to manage this more than with my girls who have a very appropriate no thank you. Our regular walks are super important for our mental health, but I'm worried about diving in and then having a lifetime of issues with the boys because we weren't patient enough. What the heck is concise anyway? (laughs) And Kim says that because I asked for the questions to be concise and she wrote us a novel, but um, I like Kim, so I'm going to go ahead and answer this whole question for you. I have been in this situation for sure. Um, I have a grumpy boots myself. Typically, that dog will be muzzled um, while I transition the friend's young dog into the group. Because I know who your friend is and I know that you walk really frequently together, I think that that would work relatively quickly. The reason I use the muzzle is so that people can stay out of it, so that that management does not have to be there um, from the human aspect. So the puppy can learn. I avoid that dog because that dog doesn't like me and we all get along just fine. Now, if you think that your dog's responses are too big for that to be okay for a puppy then I would go with your other plan of um you know walking them on a leash together but I'm just more likely to 
rip the band-aid off, use a muzzle, maybe use a combination of her recalling her puppy and you recall you telling your dog to leave it and using food reinforcement for both of them, but with that muzzle in play. The reason the muzzle is so important is so that the puppy does not get hurt um, or the puppy's feelings don't get too hurt as well and the older dog, the other dogs don't feel the need to jump in. It just isn't going to escalate to a bad place if the grumpy dog is wearing a muzzle. So what I do, and I just, I'm vigilant. I watch them. I watch, you know, how long do I need this muzzle, right? So when I was raising Junebug, the little uh, pug Boston cross that I raised for my sister, my grumpy dog, who I'll just say is Felix, um, he, he just doesn't like puppies. And he, he still curled his lip through the muzzle at Junebug for a long time, like six weeks, maybe uh, closer to two months. I don't remember. And so I'm watching his body language and I'm watching his choices. And if he still feels the need to use big language with her, he's still going to wear it. And after a couple of weeks of him not needing to use big language, and they even had a couple of moments where maybe she'd walk up and sniff something that he was sniffing and he didn't feel the need to curl his lip at her, then I knew that we could start to have some muzzle-free times. And um, that took a long time because Junebug's social skills are just that everybody should love her and there's no two ways about it. Rhea's social skills are a little bit smarter um, than that, and so Rhea earned, you know, Felix earned muzzle off with Rhea quicker than with Junebug. And then my friend has a new Border Collie puppy who Felix wore the muzzle at first when he first met her just because that's what I always do. And I knew he didn't need it immediately. This puppy was so appropriate and so mature that I took it off pretty much right away. So watching for if the muzzle is still necessary will tell you when it's time to take it off and um, keep trying. You're going to be fine. You have integrated dogs with this group before. You guys are both really smart and I, I have full faith that it will be great. Next one is from Lucy, who writes, in one of the more recent podcasts, you talk about how treat delivery is really important, but not given enough attention. Can you go into more detail on this? What are common areas where you see people not doing treat delivery well? What does good treat delivery look like to you? And do you have any tips for generally improving treat delivery during training? So yeah, Lucy, I do have a lot of tips on this. Essentially, the treat delivery needs to be A, predictable, and B, easy for the dog to collect. Okay, so if it's between your fingers and it's moving around a lot, it's hard for them to collect and it's hard for them to predict. If you're flinging it like Mardi Gras beads, it's hard for them to predict. Those are bad things. I really have taken to feeding my dogs from a cupped hand, more like you might feed a horse that way than feeding them between fingers. And that has a lot to do with just almost respecting their autonomy. I know that sounds weird, but um, handing them a piece of food between your fingers, they then have to kind of pluck it from between those fingers. Whereas if you offer it to them in your cupped hand, it just feels like they have more choice in the matter. I see dogs being less frantic about it. I see dogs taking treats much nicer. And then you are also, the onus is on you to present it in such a way that it's easy for them to get. Whereas if you do it with the two, between your two fingers, you might hold it above their head. They might have to hop for it. You're, you know, you're not as aware of presenting it to them because you are just, um, (laughs) because you're just kind of shoving it at them. So just pay attention to it. Pay attention to your dog's behavior. If everything is going great, 
then you probably don't need to change anything. But there might be instances in which you try to feed the dog from a cupped hand more like a horse and, and see how that goes for you. Or if you're tossing the food, make sure that you show it to them and then toss it rather than kind of flinging it and try to throw it to a predictable spot. Okay, and last one for this week comes from Rendina who writes, in a recent podcast... Uh, you discussed preference for using high energy reinforcement protocols as well as precise procedures to also reinforce a certain position or behavior. Um, and Rendina said, sorry if I misquote you, and I, I think I do want to clarify what I said, but let me finish the question. This made me think of healing where I would love a lot of enthusiasm, but also want my dog in a very precise location. How do you balance high energy during the reinforcement procedure along with precision? Example, treat tosses create a lot of energy, but very little precision. Treat delivered to mouth creates very little energy, but can be very precise. Where's the middle ground? So... Rendina, what I said was that I like to use high energy reinforcement protocols when I want high energy behaviors and I want to use precise procedures when I want precise behaviors. So if I do, if I'm worried about precision in my heel work, I'm going to be very precise with my food and that is not going to be high energy reinforcer. It just isn't going to be. However, if I'm concerned about the energy in the healing, I'm going to change it. I'm going to change it to a high energy reinforcer until I see that energy change. And then I'm going to intersperse those precise um, reinforcers that reinforce that those precise behaviors. So it is not finding a middle ground that there's a magic reinforcer that does both things. It is finding the balance between the two things because there isn't a reinforcer that does both what you have to do is swing that pendulum between those two things until you have kind of generally found the place in the middle that the behavior lives now because you have reinforced it both of those ways. So I hope that helps, Rendina. Thanks, everybody, for your questions. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists, where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.